Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about the American Rescue Plan. All right, guys, take us above the fold on the headlines. On Friday, President Biden signed his first landmark piece of legislation into law with his American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. The bill, titled H.R. 1319, passed the Senate with votes from the 50 Democratic senators plus the tie-breaking vote from Vice President Kamala Harris. After it was passed in the Senate, the bill was sent back to the House of Representatives, where it was passed by a 220 to 211 margin, again, only with votes from the Democratic members of the chamber, which set it up for the president's signature on Friday, where he did so in a White House signing ceremony. This $1.9 trillion aid package is bringing relief to Americans just after the one-year anniversary of the start of the pandemic. This bill has provisions that has the potential to cut childhood poverty in half, expedite the vaccination process, outfit schools with the proper accommodations to open safely, as well as those also talked about direct payments of $1,400 to most Americans. We will get into the details of this bill and the politics around its transformative impact later in the episode as we introduce a new segment called The Legislative Lowdown, where myself, Caleb, and Terrell will be breaking down pieces of legislation that will impact the lives of Americans and the politics around the process of getting it passed into law. On Monday, March 15th, the Senate confirmed Democratic Congresswoman from New Mexico's 1st District, Deb Holland, as President Biden's Secretary of Interior. Secretary Holland makes history with this confirmation as the first Native American to ever run the Department of the Interior. She is a member of the Laguna Pueblo tribe in New Mexico and a fifth-generation New Mexican. Her nomination and confirmation to this post is significant because for much of its history, the Interior Department was used as a tool of oppression against America's indigenous peoples. In addition to managing the country's public lands, endangered species, and natural resources, the department is also responsible for the government-to-government relations between the U.S. and Native American tribes. Holland also made history in 2018 as one of the first two Native American women elected to Congress. The Interior Department manages roughly one-fifth of all land in the U.S., as well as offshore holdings. The extraction and use of fossil fuels from those public lands account for about one quarter of the country's greenhouse gas emissions. The department has a role in harnessing the clean energy potential of our public lands to create jobs and new economic opportunities, Holland said during her confirmation hearing. The president's agenda demonstrates that America's public lands can and should be engines for clean energy production from NPR. Taking us to New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo, the three-term governor of New York, is confronting two crises in his leadership. As of today, March 17th, five women, including two former members of his administration, have accused him of sexual harassment or inappropriate behavior. Till this time, he has yet to resign, even after multiple members of his own party calling for his resignation. On another end, following the COVID response um, from his administration, we've found we've learned that the Cuomo administration is under fire for undercounting the number of nursing home deaths caused by COVID-19 during the first half of 2020. In both of these situations, independent inquiries are being launched by the state's attorney general's office. Taking us on an entertainment lead, this past Sunday was the 63rd Grammy Awards. I can't wait to get into a little bit with Torrance about how the industry managed to have an award ceremony that was both COVID responsible, but to my opinion, a little fun. Um, who were the big takeaways and winners tonight, Torrance? Absolutely. As Terrell said, it was a lively night of music and awards at this Sunday's Grammy ceremony. 
one of the main highlights of the evening, aside from some of the more specific award recipients, was that all of the Academy's most coveted awards of the evening were awarded to women artists. Album of the Year, which awards the year's top album, was awarded to Taylor Swift for her album Folklore. Song of the Year, which awards the songwriter of a top song, was awarded to her and her co-writer for their George Floyd and social justice-inspired song, I Can't Breathe. And Record of the Year, which awards the artist or performer of a top song, went to pop protege Billie Eilish for her song, Everything I Wanted. Another monster highlight of the evening was the moment that Beyonce made Grammy history. Beyonce's win for her feature on Megan Thee Stallion's Savage Remix for Best Rap Song made her the most decorated solo female musician in Academy history with 28 awards. Not only did she break that record, she is now tied with none other than the incomparable super producer Quincy Jones for most awarded member of all time by any artist, male or female. Megan Thee Stallion also had a big night. The Houston-based rapper took home the highly coveted trophy for Best New Artist in addition to Best Rap Performance and Rap Song for the Savage Remix featuring Beyonce. Taylor Swift also took home her third Album of the Year award for Folklore that she wrote and recorded entirely in quarantine. And she is now the only woman in history to take home that award three times. All right, guys, like I mentioned in Above the Fold, we are debuting a brand new segment this week called The Legislative Lowdown. The Legislative Lowdown is going to be a segment where myself, Terrell, and Caleb get into the details of different pieces of legislation that are either being proposed by the administration, working their way through the legislative process, or have already been passed into law that we believe are going to have a significant impact on the American people. We know that sometimes the jargon that is written into some of this legislation is not easy for everyone to read or to understand where all of our taxpayer dollars are going to. And so we felt like this segment was going to be a really good way for us to serve the, to serve the people by getting into the details and talking about it relatably. So guys, I'm going to get into some of the more specific parts of the bill, and then I want to have a really robust conversation about how we think this is going to impact average Americans' lives, how we think this is the right um, magnitude of a bill to meet the moment of the crisis and how we think it's going to be transformative moving forward. Um, in the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, Biden's first uh, legislative victory, this includes direct payments, which would go to individuals making up to $75,000 and couples making up to $150,000 per year will be eligible to receive a $1,400 check. Individuals earning between $75,000 and $80,000 are couples between earning between $150,000 and $160,000 will receive some of that money, but not the full amount. Unemployment insurance benefits are currently at $300 per week on top of the state benefit and are set to expire on March 14th. This bill extends that program through September 6th at $300 per week. This also includes an increase in the child tax credit. The bill raises the child tax credit for most families in the coming year by $1,000 to $3,000 per child. It's even more for families with young children. Many can receive a credit of $3,600 for children under the age of six. All of these credits are fully refundable, and some researchers say these measures could potentially help cut child poverty in half in this country. This bill also delivers $350 billion cash infusion to state and local governments who are at huge revenue deficits this year due to the pandemic, and $130 billion to elementary, middle, and high schools to help them reopen safely by making the accommodations and outfitting their buildings with the proper ventilation and PPE to keep teachers and students safe. This bill also includes an additional $50 billion in assistance for small businesses. 
including more than $7 billion for the Troubled Payment Protection Program. In a break from previous relief packages, this bill provides $28.6 billion in grant relief specifically for restaurants, which have been particularly particularly decimated by the pandemic. Last, but of course not least, in addition to other things, the bill allocates $20 billion in funding for vaccine distribution, including $1 billion for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention to launch a vaccine awareness and engagement campaign, and $7.5 billion for the CDC to set up vaccination sites across the country and monitor distribution. This also includes $50 billion to increase COVID testing and contact tracing across the country. Now, I know that that was a mouthful, and excuse me for the speed of <laughs> listeners, um, but I wanted to make sure that we got all the details in there and that we provided a good context for the conversation we want to have, not only about how this is going to impact Americans' lives, but the politics behind getting it passed. Um, Like I mentioned in Above the Fold, this was a bill that was passed by both chambers of the House without a single vote from the Republican Party. Um, And one of my first questions that I do want to pose to you, Terrell and Caleb, is, well, you can give me some general thoughts on the bill. how what your thoughts on this only passing with democratic votes is and due to that do we think this was a smart use of the budget reconciliation process that allowed the senate to pass this with a 51 vote threshold as opposed to a 60 vote threshold due to the filibuster and cloture those are great questions torrance you know i have a couple thoughts first of all this is it you cannot we i mean not that you did but we cannot understate how um big and impactful this bill is. It's one of the it's one of the biggest uh, bills that has ever been passed um, to impact positively the social safety net of the country, and it's it's kind of phenomenal that we got it done. We had no idea throughout the process that all of this was in it, right? We just knew COVID really fourteen hundred stimulus checks and all of that. And when this came out, it was kind of mind blowing. Um, and I have a question to pose after my thoughts about the Republicans. But when it comes to the Republicans not voting for any of it at all, it kind of makes sense when I saw everything else in the bill. Yet, this was a very largely popular bill. Um, 70, over 70% of Americans uh, support the bill, including a lot of Republicans as well. I think you have some of the stats on that, Torrance. And for Republicans to not vote for it is, it's not, it's not surprising, but it's, it's disappointing. It's disappointing. I mean, I mean, no, I, I, if you don't mind if I jump in there, Caleb, just because I do want to provide that stat, is that this was a bill that had upwards of, across different polls, the average was around 69 to 70% support broadly by Americans, with the Pew Research Center's poll specifically saying that 41% of self-identified Republicans were for this bill. And I know I've said it before, and I think I initially spoke about my disdain for this kind of behavior by elected officials when I was on for the American Dream episode, but I just simply can't understand as an elected official how you can vote against the will of your people, um, especially especially something like this, where it's going to be direct aid to average Americans um, who are living through a pandemic, who are have lost their jobs to no fault of their own, who are being forced to stay home and take care of their children. Um, this has pushed a lot of women out of the workforce, a lot of people of color out of the workforce. This is bringing direct relief to Americans. Um, Repub- the Republican Party is supposed to be the populist party of the of working Americans, yet they have kind of, you know, failed their duty to those constituents uh, and to that messaging by not supporting this bill. When was the last time that the Republican Party actually showed up for hardworking Americans? I mean, you want to think about certain regions where they come from, but West Virginia 
one of the most blue collar areas is currently being represented by a Democrat. Um, all that to say, though, I question, is it surprising that the GOP chose not to, to stand in unison against this bill when um, when you now know the full details of what occurred, but also when we look at and understand that this is a party that is caving to its loudest voice, right? You have your Marjorie Taylor Greens who are making an effort to put up signs that have nothing to do with policy or anything of substance or fact. And yet the party was more concerned about protecting her and her committee assignments than protecting Liz Cheney, who made a decision of conscience that she felt was appropriate. So I I think I I appreciate what you both are are sharing, but I I just don't find it surprising. I, I feel like when you think about how our political structure works now, the parties voted exactly how they should have. One party is actually listening to the broad majority of people and, and caring about the pains that people are going through. And the other party is hearing the kooks and crazies, the, the white supremacists who are mad that six Dr. Seuss books got canceled. I'm not. And, and you know, honestly, I want to I want to maybe correct your language there, Terrell, on the cancellation of, of, of Dr. Seuss books because they weren't canceled. And uh, I do know that Caleb has a, a few thoughts on that, so I will save the details of that to later and let him get into it. But I do think that you're highlighting a really important point, that the Republican, the Republican media and a lot of Republican representatives and uh, senators over the past couple of weeks as we've been negotiating this bill and trying to get it through um, with just Democratic support have been having these culture wars. Um, Mm -hmm. talking about everything but the actual bill, talking about Dr. Seuss and some of these books that have been decided to be no longer published, talking about Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head and the move by Hasbro to want to just have potato heads, but also have Mr. and Mrs. Potato Heads, because let's just face it, it's a potato, um, not a gendered human being. Uh, And not having any conversations about the constituents in their districts who are facing... um, facing the hardships of this pandemic economically and with their health uh, and aren't having conversations about how certain parts of this bill are going to impact them and bring relief to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they're very specifically having these, these culture war conversations as a way to distract from that, because I believe that they're not voting for this is a dereliction of duty. I don't know how you justify voting for a $1.9 trillion tax cut that, um, went mostly to the top 1%, but largely the top 20% of people in this mm-hmm. country, um, but did not have a single vote cast for bringing the same amount of money um, to relieve Americans of the hardships we're facing in this unprecedented time. Excuse me for using that word. <laughs> I think it fits in this situation. Trell, I got to say, um, I'm not surprised, but as usual, I'm disappointed by the Republican <laughs> Party. Uh, look, like uh, a little bit of a tangent. Uh, maybe That's a my little... job. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little uh, foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the Republican Party is uh, it's it's fractured, uh, to say the least, um, on the inside. And I mean, you saw that with the impeachment stuff that happened. And you're seeing that every day whenever Trump opens his mouth, basically. But I, I really think that for some reason, the Republicans thought, oh, they're going to use the budget reconciliation process it's easy for us to all be united around voting no for this, even though everybody likes it because they've gotten away with doing stuff like that all the time. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, they're still winning elections. I mean, not really this one, but even this one was close when maybe it shouldn't have been. And I think their plan B, especially when they want to distract from their own problems, is a culture war. And I mean, Dr. Seuss. Mr. Potato Head. Y'all came in at the right time for them to just talk about that instead of the stimulus bill. It, it certainly was a, a red herring uh, and a, a scapegoat <laughs> for them in this moment. Because, and we can give credit to our to our intelligent and good friends over at Crooked Media, um, when Dan was talking about specifically economic issues divide Republicans and bring together Democrats, but yeah. cultural issues bring together Republicans and sometimes uh put rifts in the, in the Democratic Party. So what are they going to do when they know that they can't win the economic argument here because Americans really do need this relief mm -hmm. and it's broadly popular? They pivot to a culture conversation that they know, if nothing else, is going to gin up their base. Well, let me pose this to both of y'all, actually. Right now, the president and vice president are traveling the country to speak to and talk about this bill and, and all of the good things that um, have come out of it. I share it with y'all offline, a TikTok, I do believe, of Kamala Harris speaking to a reporter and saying, we're not trying to sell the bill. We're telling the American people what their rights are, what just passed and what they have the ability to connect with and utilize so that they can survive through this pandemic. Do you feel that, and maybe the Democratic Party will knock me for saying this out loud, but do you feel like for the first time, the party is actually taking onus of a moment and doing the appropriate thing? Or is this a, a fear, as uh, Caleb pointed out, that this bill is going to end up like Obamacare and come midterms, everything is going to go out the window for them? Uh, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if this is a bill that will, I mean, time will tell, but I don't know if it will be sitting here right now. Um, something that can be compared to Obamacare in the midterms, because you have Republic, some Republican senators are literally taking credit for what's in the bill. Like I truly believe that if Republicans weren't so scared of the structure of losing their seats um, to people that Donald Trump supports and whatnot, I think we would have had some Republicans voting for this. I agree. I think this this is a party that, and we've discussed about this at length off air, but this is a party that is continuously working for a smaller sliver of the voting population, as far as I can see. Um, and, and this actually does give me an opportunity to say something that I did want to say um, to listeners is that, yes, us three are Democrats, but that's because I would, I would argue, what is there for me in the Republican Party? If someone can make the pitch to me that there's that the Republican Party speaks for me is working to make my life better and, and meeting the needs that I have or people that I love and people that I care about, then I would be happy to root for that party and try to get those people elected. But that's not the case. Uh, you know, we're, we're not some paid podcast to, to promote the DNC. They just simply are not they're not perfect, but they simply are meeting the needs and meeting um, the moment that we think is necessary. Um, but to your original question, Terrell, um, I think that. This was a mistake for them not to vote to not to vote for this bill. Mm. And I think that it's not going to end up like Obamacare. Um, well, I don't I guess I shouldn't put it that because Obamacare's only gotten more popular every single year since it's been a law. Um, <laughs> but I do like the way that pres that Vice President Harris said that. 
we are not here to sell this bill. We are here to tell the American people what their rights are. We forget sometimes that when it's a, when it's like a stimulus bill or an economic bill, that this is something that's being signed into law. It is your right. It is the law. These are these are resources that you have access to. And I think that if we continue this kind of communication and messaging to the American people, we will eventually um, do what I've been hoping we would do with this opportunity to govern, which is to prove and show that we can answer the call of the American people and actually provide for them and end this conversation about um, government can't help the people. The stupid saying from from Reagan in the '80s about the the worst nine words in the American in the American language or in the English language, excuse me, because there is no American language, uh, are I'm from the government and I'm here to help. The government can work, and the government has worked in the past. In the 1950s and 60s, this is something that is shared in the Sum of Us, a book by Heather McGee that just recently uh, was released. That, that she traveled the country to kind of understand what has been the cost of racism on us all, not just black people, but economically on all people mm-hmm. because of the way that we've divided across race and not across class. Um, that she talks about how we used to have a much larger activist government that provided for a, a, a standard of living, um, not as a, not as a welfare or a social safety net, but rather we subsidize so many more things in our society to reach a standard of living that we all agreed upon. But once we integrated, we decided not to do that because yeah. who are these benefits going to? So we used to have a big activist government that worked for us. And I think we can get back there if we prove through our actions and governing that it's possible. And, and I think you pose a really great point that also can't be lost in the passage of of this relief and this recovery act for the first time in a very long time in my personal opinion i think the government showed up for the people right it it recognized that there were groups of people struggling it recognized that we might be in a pandemic now but 10 12 months after the vac- everyone's fully vaccinated there's still going to be harm and pain that was caused because of this moment that needs to be dealt with and unlike what we see from uh, the republican party that leans on and pushes through a tax cut that goes to the top 10% and gives them more money from their inheritance um, taxes or changes how the um, capital gains tax functions so that that pocket of individuals can trickle down their funds. This was a moment that the three branches of our legislative process came together and showed up for the average working American and didn't care about the corporations and the lobbyists, but said there are people who are hurting at a certain point. We're going to target this bill and target this relief to show up for them. And that's a challenge that I would call on every American as, as time moves on. And as we, we reminisce on the twenties, how great and how how much of a breath of fresh air did it feel to have your government show up for you and not turn on the news and hear about this amazing tax cut that is going to expire in two years and then your taxes are going to skyrocket but not skyrocket for another population? How great was it to realize that, and, and we can get into this a little bit more about if budget reconciliation was the right choice, but how how great was it that this bill made a point to call out the lowest earners in our country and say, this is for you. We're not going to just spew it across 
to individuals who are who might not be doing amazingly right now, but are doing comfortably. How great did that feel? And and is it worth going to the other option just because? Um, I think is a point that we just can't let let fall on deaf ears here. I I wanted to I wanted to talk about something that you mentioned actually offline uh, to me, Terrell, and because I think that we had a pretty good conversation not on air about it. Um, because I think that it is important for people to understand that like the legislative process is not always fun. It's not always clean. It's not always, we don't always get what we want because of it. Um, and you, you were ta- you were just kind of throwing around all the politics around the $2,000 and the $1,400 in this bill and the $600 in the last bill and whether some people thought that this should be 2k and not $1,400. Um, and that, that the $600 before wasn't meant to complement this as the whole 2K. Mm-hmm. The kind of political dialogue around that, um, I think a lot from people in our sphere, our age, people we went to college with, um, we're talking a lot about this. Um, and then you, you had posed the question to me about whether I thought that this, this mattered. Was this a mistake? Um, and I don't believe that it's a mistake. Like, do I wish that it was 2K? Because I think that the, the problem is that bad and that this would meet the moment and that extra $600 could help get people further out of this hole that they probably had to dig themselves into to sustain life over the past year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that would be great. But the facts of the legislative process, going introducing a bill in the House, moving it to the Senate, back to the House after it's been amended, um, is that we don't always get what we want. That's why we have representatives from across the country. We have things that we propose and that we're going to fight for and that we will vote against if it's not in there. But I think that when you have a bill that is this good across the board and is going to have this kind of massive economic impact to get bogged down in, in the grand scheme of things, 600 extra dollars on that $1,400 direct payment when it's not the only relief that's going to target some of these families, right? Because mm-hmm. families are going to get that, but they're also going to get this the child tax credit. And if they own a small business, they're also going to hopefully be getting um, help with, with a loan to, to sustain that if they've had to close, et cetera. Like there's a, there's, this bill kind of converges all of our resources onto Americans and says, we want to help. How can we help you? And I just don't think that the difference between $1,400 and $2,000 is a deal breaker. I don't think it is either. And I actually think kind of to your point about um, kind of all the stuff that was in the bill, I think it does show where the Democrat, how much the Democratic Party has moved kind of together. And while it might not feel that way with Joe Manchin doing some silly games at the end in the Senate and whatnot, I think the Democratic Party is actually a lot uh, closer in beliefs of what needs to be done than they aren't. Um, but I actually want to pose a question for all of you. Uh, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, uh, Torrance, I think already, but legislative process. Yeah, whatever. How do we feel that $15 minimum wage wasn't part of that? Terrell, you go first, my friend. <laughs> Why am I Spotlight. the one to start? It, it didn't fit. It, especially in this conversation that we're having right now, how amazing is it how amazing is it that this bill passed and when we were turning on the news the only talking point that the republicans had to hit on was dr seuss and that they felt the bill was too bloated at no point did we have to get bogged down into the um child tax credit or into some of these subsidies on education 
I again, I go back to and, and maybe it'll haunt me later. I do believe this is the one time that the Democrats actually did it right. They stuck to a message. They stuck to this is here to support and help average working Americans. All the pieces that are in there are helping average working Americans and, and are important to have. But they didn't let the policies that a Republican Party would traditionally call too socialist bog it down and torpedo it or or bring up negative press or give them any oxygen. They stuck to their message. And I would like to point out when the $15 minimum wage was considered to be a part of this bill, that flooded the airwaves. Every major news outlet was talking about it, questioning if Bernie Sanders was going to sneak it in, questioning if the two Democratic senators were going to stay and actually push for it to happen. This was while I might want it, this was the right call, but I'm going to pass it to Torrance because I'm sure you might have extra points to add on and, and no other things. No, I also think that you, you summed it up pretty well. Of course, if I was, say, uh, a congressional staffer, I would have fought tooth and nail for it. This yeah. is something that I believe is a necessity. Um, $15 an hour is, I don't want to say hardly, is not a living wage. Um <laughs> in most places in this country and would be barely a living wage in other places. And that's being generous to that statement. Um, I think that, I think that what is $15, $15 an hour full time is somewhere around like 32,000 a year before taxes. Yeah. Any of our, any other of our adult listeners can do the math quick in their head to know that that's going to make for a hard standard of living um, in this country. And I think that, that we need to, propose a $15 uh, minimum wage increase as a clean bill, because then I don't think that it allows some of these senators from uh, both Democrat and Republican states alike uh, to vote no against it. And I say that because the $15 minimum wage has been a ballot initiative in states across the country, both blue and red, and has passed with overwhelming support. Just recently in uh, 2020 election, it was a ballot initiative in Florida of all places, uh, and it passed with overwhelming support. A place that that was red has mass support for for President Trump and the Republican Party. Uh, so I think that when it's being if it's introduced as a clean bill, I think that some of these senators and con- Congress people are going to have a tough time uh, having to say no to this or answering to their constituents for doing so because it is um, it's criminal and sinful in my opinion that we have had we have had the same minimum wage or by our laws, believed to be the same minimum wage as a good standard of living since 2009 at Mm. $7.25. It's laughable, but not really because it's disgusting. (laughs) Like, I cannot believe that anyone would expect another person to live on that. And I I think, and this is why I did pass to you, because you you bring up a good point of how civics has failed us over a multitude of generations Having the $15 minimum wage be a standalone bill and and having language and, and a real in-depth policy discussion about what that means is the legislative process, right? We've been taught and coached to romanticize the New Deal, to romanticize the Civil Rights Act, to romanticize these big omnibus moments of change for our country. But that's not how the legislative process was truly intended. It's helpful and it's good. And it was the government showing up in times that it needed to be there. But having a real conversation about $15 minimum wages and the impact it's going to have on the 
um, the economy, on small business, on all of those pieces, and really working out and getting something that fits that makes sense. And it's something that I would have loved if this bill could have done it. But there's a lot of things happening in that moment. There are a lot of pieces that this bill had to go for. And and again, I, I go to the, the piece of we've been taught to romanticize these omnibus legislative pieces in our country. Um, but that's a space that we really need to think about it and have a better conversation around as well. Absolutely. And, and sort of as a pivot, um, we talk about the $15 minimum wage, not just because we think that $15 is, is a good amount for someone to pay who works full to pay someone who works full time. It's about a standard of living, what we believe to be a moral uh, and just standard of living in this country. Um, and I think that brings us to something else that is in this bill that has had is going to have a huge um, economic impact, and that if it is instituted long term as a program, has the potential to cut childhood poverty in this country in half. And that's the increase of the child tax credit. Um, the bill calls for a increase in the child tax credit that allows for thirty six hundred dollars uh, for each kid under the age of six and three thousand dollars for each child between the ages of six and seventeen. And the Biden administration is working with the Department of Treasury to make that accessible in, um, in individual sectored payments from July through the end of the year. Um, and the reason that they say that if this was instituted long term, it could cut childhood poverty in this country in half is is not that crazy of a thing um, as far as it being a long-term bill or a permanent a permanent program is that peers of ours like Canada, like England, like our European allies um, have a child allowance program in their countries that allows for a couple hundred dollars per child that goes to homes for the sake of lifting families out of poverty, for the sake of keeping children out of poverty, because we know that childhood poverty has a lifelong impact. It decreases your, your overall health over your lifetime. It decreases your likelihood of completing your education, of getting a degree, it is all of those things are impacted by childhood poverty. And by making an investment in our children, our future, I think that it's a really important um, a really important thing to do. And I think that this is an excellent opportunity for us to put our money where our mouth is when we talk about a moral standard of living in this country. One that I think that we have often said in the past we already have, but have not met that with legislation and programs that sustain it. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Again, I kind of go back to to what I think of the bill in general, and it's just hard to understate how big and impactful this bill is. Um, and I believe I believe that child tax credit um, can reduce fifty uh, percent of the child poverty that is experienced in the U.S. if it's continued, mm-hmm. not just for the year, right? That's such a big deal. It's like there's already a lot of studies out there that that say if like if children are growing up through poverty, then like their lives are going to be significantly different than those who don't. And it's just again, it's just hard to understate the actual impact that is. I I might be wrong in saying this, but this is kind of a universal basic income almost for people with children, right? Uh, you, you could, you could call it that. You can make an argument. I mean, I mean, we've had the conversation, right? Like a, an increase in the child, child tax credit doesn't really make people like blink really, right? Like it doesn't really rile up the, the right too much. It, we basically have like a broad support across the board for, for that, right? 
What exactly is different about just breaking up that amount over the 12 months to allow for a sustained support to families to maintain um, mm-hmm. a certain standard of living and to not allow for children to fall into poverty? I don't really know why the, dif- the, the difference in the two would be so significant for people, but we know I think politically it would be, right? Because the right yeah. would message this as, as welfare um, when really it's just cutting the money a different way. And not just the right. I, I mean, we've touched on this a lot of times about was but budget reconciliation the appropriate process, but we can't ignore the fact that one specific senator really showed at one, how diverse the party is, but two, how certain messages like that, Torrens, uh, make it a lot more difficult to do the right thing. Senator Manchin um, fought to have the unemployment benefits lowered and the time frame for those to be allocated shortened because he believes that that type of policy keeps people unemployed. And it's those type of narratives that that carry over. So as, as we talk about the child tax credit, it's understanding that, yes, you can make that argument, but this did a really good job of pushing just a little bit closer to the center to not have it be stuck in that narrative that you can have senators like the Senator from West Virginia make an argument that, well, if we keep doing this, uh, parents won't even go to work anymore. It'll, we'll just all turn into We've talked about this a lot offline as well. We'll just all turn into a welfare state. And we're talking about a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. Like that's that's enough to keep someone, a parent of a child, from working. Uh, It's just a really silly and empty um, comment to make. And and, and it doesn't really logically um, piece together correctly. Right. Compute. Thank you. And I also think that as far as like the right support or lack of support for this program specifically, um, this is why I took such issue with them voting against the bill. Um, I know they, they could, I know they could hide behind the the overall size of it, right? And their fiscal conservatism can can, can kind of be that shield for for not voting for this, despite its broad support. But Senator Romney and I'm I don't want to misspeak, but it's with another Republican senator has a proposal in the Senate that allows for a child allowance that is almost exactly the same as what this this tax credit is going to, to shape out to be. He has one that would implement a permanent program for a child allowance very similar to Canada's that would that allow for a couple hundred dollars up to a couple hundred dollars based on the age to every family for every child that they have. I this is this is why this is why I'm always saying watch what they do, not what they say, right? Mm-hmm. That's my girl Rachel Maddow that <laughs> That politicians will say a lot of things, but the resources are at our fingertips to to know what they're actually doing. And the listeners should get used to it. I'm going to say it a lot. Congress.gov, my friends. Now, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I do get on there and I do read bills. And sometimes they're all in this legal jargon and legalese and I and I don't love it. And sometimes I have to like cl- get clarification on what each thing fully means and if I'm understanding it correctly. I'm we've right got there to with use you. Resources. Yeah, we got to use our resources at our fingertips to be informed voters voters, to be informed citizens. Um, and I think that that's a large, large part of our uh, motivation with this show is to try to lead people to the knowledge and resources so they can inf- make their own informed opinion about it, right? Torrance, serious question. Yeah. Did you read all 600 pages of this American Rescue Plan? 
Oh, God, no. What? Do you want me to lie to you like a senator and say, yeah, I read it in a couple hours? No, no. I th- And luckily here, friends, I can explain a little more about Congress.gov. It has different links to, di- to different um, articles in uh, the bill that say specifically what program it's covering. So you mm-hmm. don't got to go in there and read about uh, the really great part of this bill that is offering $5 billion to black farmers, if that's not necessarily something that you need to, to know about. But there that's is $5 billion dollars specifically for, that was for like black one of my farmers. Favorite reads. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and that is something I know we haven't talked about it, right? But there are $5 billion specifically allocated to, to black farmers and um, other minority farmers because of the systemic racism that has disadvantaged them for decades. Um, and I think that it's a very small number, but it's going to have a huge impact on minority farmers in this country. Yeah. But as I was saying, yes, you can look at different parts of the bill. You don't have to look at the whole thing on congress.gov. Um, and I know that it's a little policy wonk of me, a little nerdy of me to do that, but for to be honest, I get anxiety from not knowing. Like, I would like to know where my taxpayer dollars are going. I'd like to know how my um, representatives are voting on certain things, on certain amendments. Call it accountability. Call it. Call me nerdy. <laughs> and as a small tangent, you can also do the same thing for the Supreme Court by going to um, the Supreme Court of the U.S. blog, and that's where they post all of their opinions, and they give you nice little quick summaries of what the opinion did and what it means. So you can always be informed of what's happening in your world. News to me. (laughs) I'm the nerd who reads every opinion. I'll own that one. Policy. (laughs) I get a little shaky. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit more about, we, we didn't get, we didn't get kind of deep into, um, the conversation around the budget reconciliation process and that kind of, touches back to the initial conversation we had two weeks ago about the filibuster in the Senate and the lack mm-hmm. of efficiency. Um, I did kind of want to have a conversation about that in this segment um, because I believe that it's important only because I think that we're getting ready to gear up for another conversation on the filibuster um, in Senate regarding HR1, which I think mm-hmm. is going to be, if I'm correct, guys, a little spoiler, um, going to be our next endeavor in the legislative lowdown is getting into HR1, the proposed bill for voting rights. Um so to explain to people the budget reconciliation process, um, we have a 60 vote threshold in the Senate due to the filibuster um, that requires obviously 60 votes to pass any pieces of legislation. And in order to get rid of the rid of the filibuster, it would be a huge undertaking by the Democratic Party that would probably elicit a lot of backlash from the minority party, the Republicans right now, um, despite all of their their legislative agenda being broadly popular. Mm-hmm. Um, but the budget reconciliation process is a process that was instituted in the Nixon era that allowed for the majority party to pass uh, with only 50 plus one votes legislation that is for the budget. And I think they can do it twice in a congressional um, in a congressional year. And they use their first the, their first budget reconciliation process for this bill. Um, do we think that that was intelligent and only having one other? what do we think they should use that on? I think it was intelligent. I think it was intelligent because I think COVID relief is something that needed to be passed, whether Republicans supported it or not. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't really care that people are out there criticizing Democrats and Biden about, oh, you had a unity message, but you're not even talking to us. First of all, that's not 100% true. But second of all, Mm -hmm. Americans needed this. So I... I do think it was intelligent because whether strategy for what the second one will be or 
or whatnot was included in the thinking of passing it this time through reconciliation, Mm -hmm. it was for the people. And like Terrell said earlier, this is kind of like one of the first times in a while we feel like the government's had like passed something. The government showed that they were there for the people. So I, yes, I think, I think whether it was strategic or not, they had to do this. Yeah. And I mean, I think we touched on it really well throughout this conversation the other side was busy arguing about Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss. Potato X, actually. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> I, small small tangent again. If you didn't switch out the lips with your Mr. Potato Head back in the 90s and put Mrs. Potato Head's lips on him, like, he's always been gender neutral and non-binary. Move what? on. Well, he's been a potato. I, use, I remember multiple times I gave... <laughs> I remember multiple times I put like female legs on him because I couldn't find his normal legs. Like, it's, are we really having this argument? Anyway, Same. coming back. Um, th- that was what the other side was arguing about. So you're telling me that this was supposed to be a real substantive legislative conversation without taking budget reconciliation? And even when the White House allowed for, allowed for is not appropriate, even when the White House invited um, eight to 10 Republican senators to come to the Oval Office and speak with them about where their concerns are. They had a conversation. They they listened. They understood. They disagreed that this bill needed to be lowered as much as that the group of Republicans felt. But I, I can't help but notice a Democratic senator went to town and got the, the Democratic Party to lower certain um, uh, numbers in this bill and not a single Republican could sign on to that when it was things that they were arguing for. Yes, they didn't come down on the direct payment. But from an unemployment standpoint, the Republicans won in that situation. And, and just like you highlighted with Mitt Romney and um, the his belief of what the future of the tax credit could be, the Repo- a Republican could have won in this space and said, I voted for this for that reason. But they all voted no. And, and to me, that sign enough that there was no other option. They had to move this way. Uh, does that mean that they need to get rid of the filibuster? I don't believe so. I, I think there's some more robust conversations finally happening around that of it's not an either or, it's an and or. Um, the filibuster can move towards it, its more traditional way where someone has to stand on the floor the entire time and argue. And if they have three um, instances where they fail to um to live up to or, or follow the the procedure as laid out by the parliamentarian, their filibuster is ended and then they move to a vote. Um, we can move that route and have that kind of conversation. That doesn't mean that all of the things that are happening right now prove why the filibuster in its entirety need to be removed. Yeah. And I think that a part of this conversation that's super important, um, not to just necessarily make a point about justification for using the budget reconciliation process, but people should know if they if they weren't following this closely um, during the Trump administration. I know that we didn't, the podcast wasn't largely existent for most of it, but the Republicans, when they had control of the Senate, the la- their, two of the ways that they used the budget reconciliation process was one, to pass the $1.9 trillion uh, tax cut. And the other was to try to repeal Obamacare. And it failed. Thank you, John <laughs> McCain. Uh, and, and it failed. So if we're talking about good uses of the budget reconciliation process, I'll go to bat any day for a 
COVID stimulus bill that is going to bring relief to average Americans over the use of it to take away health care um, or to give a tax cut to the to the ultra rich and mm-hmm. and specifically just to counter the to taking away health care this bill included funds for health care which covered the cost of cobra for people who have lost their job and cobra is a program that allows people to keep their um, their employer insurance through that unemployment period um, yeah. and also has also has funding to increase to lower subsidies for people who are on um, Obamacare and making mm-hmm. healthcare much more affordable as well as some other benefits to help pay for funeral costs for families who don't have the money as well as yeah. covering all vaccination costs and um, the COVID costs that 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 qualify. So this is this is all for good reason and I think is morally just. Yeah, and one last point on this specifically to the expansion of healthcare in this bill and the the subsidies that were allocated to Cobra. How I don't want to say great because that's just the the cynical pessimist in me, but how great is it to see the GOP's hypocrisy in full force in this moment? You you have this party that's arguing we need to reopen our government. There are people who are out of work. Blah 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 blah. And here's a direct linkage to. We're in a pandemic. You lost your job. You get sick and you don't have health care. You, you may die. Here's a direct uh, focus on something to solve that problem. Something that if you're going to keep making this argument that people need work so that they can have all their benefits and they can live a more prosperous life. Here's an opportunity for you to give them that grace until they find their job and fight for reopening the economy. And again, every single Republican voted no. Like the hypocrisy that they continue to demonstrate, I know is going to die out in a new cycle or two, but it's it's just, it's interesting to always look back and see, or just hear in a conversation that all three of us may have. You know, Torrance, uh, uh, I, think, I think we all forgot to answer your last question. What should the Democrats use the next budget reconciliation on? And... Uh, you know, I don't know what the next, however long before that happens, is going. I don't know what's going to happen, right? But I think, I think the single most important bill is HR one. Now, does it affect budget? It can. I don't know. I, I don't can. think that, that can be passed we, the budget reconciliation process. I, I don't. I don't so. want it to. It a hundred percent can. And well, after, the the minimum, after the minimum wage conversation. Yes. I mean, yes, it's a different conversation, but I just want to add in what when you think about what needs to happen from an election and voter security piece, that is all going to end up being budget. There needs to be money allocated to the state so that they can better secure their system. There needs to be money allocated. I mean, Democrats won't like this, but it's a it's a loophole. There can be money allocated towards um, voter IDs, and that can actually be a law that the Democrats hop on and say, Every voter needs an ID to move forward, but here are all the requirements and every state has to issue every person of age a voter ID. There's another piece of the budget. There's also tax subsidies that can be, there's also tax subsidies that you can use to give to um, local facilities to say, hey, if you want to be a voter uh, voting facility on a Sunday we're going to give you this tax credit so that you can keep open later. There are some really, really unique and clever ways that this could easily get through um, 
budget reconciliation. And this is my policy want coming out. So I'm going, going to let y'all. No, no, I, I love that Terrell. Yeah, and I, I actually like those, those are pieces of the budget that I wouldn't have necessarily thought of when I was thinking, when I was thinking about whether this would pass the parliamentarian to be able to, to go yeah. through the budget reconciliation process, because I was pretty, I felt pretty strongly about the minimum wage being able to be put in through that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was kind of shocked that it, that it wasn't. And so that's why I think my doubts uh, were had about this. To answer my own question, if I had to choose, now now I do believe that HR1 is the most important piece of legislation that we will see um, maybe this entire decade or have seen in the last 10 years. I mean, this ensuring voting rights, I don't think there's anything more important in a democracy, especially one that likes to pride itself on being the greatest democracy um, in the world. Mm-hmm. But I believe that if not HR1, um, then specifically an environment and infrastructure bill, because I think that that's another opportunity for us to put our money where our mouth is when we say that that responding to the crisis of the of the environment and rebuilding our infrastructure can be a engine for job creation in this country. And I truly believe that. And I think that renewable energy is a way for us to do that. And I would love to see the Democrats take a really big swing at the plate for that. Oh, my gosh, Torrance, you took my other one. I want to see green infrastructure bill. I'm actually going to pivot from both of y'all just sitting here listening to this. My first thought is always equity. And like, yes, that would be awesome if we had a more robust conversation there. But I I think there's something that we as a country need to recognize isn't at the forefront of our minds because we are living through a pandemic. And I'm really, really concerned, especially after the events that happened last night in Atlanta, that they will come back. And that's gun reform. I I know that that will be a fight and it will be a hard fight for the Democratic Party to even try to get that. And if this is the only opportunity they have to go through budget reconciliation, to limit automatic rifles, to limit magazines, to get some more funding towards mental health and and to, to better tighten up those loopholes that allow for gun licensing, even though I agree with both of you, uh, voting is number one, and we need to be thinking about how we're building our cities for the future, not for the past. That's the one that I have to throw my hat in and say, ram that through, because it, it has to happen. Absolutely. And I think that, like Caleb has said, like Terrell has said, like I have said, there's a ton of pieces of legislation that we're interested in getting into the deep details on. Um, and that's something that we hope to continue to do here um, on Dangerously Likely with our Legislative Lowdown segment. Um I want to call out to the to the listeners and ask you guys to go onto our Twitter, to go onto our Instagram. Let us know what you guys would like us to talk about. What bills are on your mind um, or what pieces of legislation are going to be proposed that are on your mind that you hope to know a little bit more about the specifics and how you think or know it would impact your family and want other listeners to know the same. Um, I think this was a really robust conversation. I hope that we continue to get better um, with the specifics as we go on. Um, but thank you all. This was our first segment of the Legislative Lowdown. All right, boys, take us on a tangent. Caleb, you start. Okay. (laughs) So, as you all have heard, and it's come up several times in our conversation, uh, Dr. Seuss seems to be the number one issue in America currently, along with Potato Head. And I just want to say, first of all, let's clear this up real quick. The Mr. Potato Head basically just took the Mr. and Mrs. off. It's just Potato Head now. And for some reason, that's an issue. 
And Dr. Seuss's publishers, who are like relatives to Dr. Seuss himself, said, hey, look at these six books. There's some really bad racial images in here. And we're going to take that out. And we're going to start stop publishing these six books. And oh my gosh, if you watched Fox News and like Tucker Carlson or you follow any Republican, uh, they were freaking out about... Oh, they were freaking out about this. The left is canceling Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head. And, and really, it's just, it's just their plan B for culture wars, as we were kind of already talking about, right? But what just absolutely frustrates me is how blatant their bigotry and racism is here. They don't like that Mr. Potato Head and Mrs. Potato Head don't have their, their pronouns anymore because it's inherently anti-trans. And... Dr. Seuss, <laughs> sorry, I'm just so frustrated about this. Dr. Seuss having racial, like racially like sensitive imagery in their books and the publisher itself has decided, first of all, that happens all the time. Publishers do this all the time. The publisher deciding to take these six books, like not make them anymore is like a good decision, but Republicans fighting it so hard and freaking out about it so much. It's like, why do you want to read a book that's inherently racist, right? And, you know, I just go on to Tucker Carlson. I mean, I don't actually watch him. I was watching a John Oliver who was talking about him last week tonight with John Oliver. Great show, HBO Max, of course. And, I mean, he did a whole segment on Tucker Carlson. And every time Tucker Carlson says something that's inherently racist, like anything he said about Dr. Seuss or Potato Head, um, and someone calls him out on it, he goes, well, what even is white supremacy? And oh my God, it's just so absolutely frustrating and disgusting. And that's my tangent. Take us on a tangent, Torrent. You know, I've been sitting here like, what is my tangent going to be this week? Because it could be plenty, right? Um, but I'm actually going to go ahead and allow Caleb to inspire me with this, which is that <laughs> last piece, which is, say, for example, the Tucker Carlson thing, right? Where we talk about racism. He's like, well, what even is white supremacy? Is in the media, why on earth is it so hard for them to be honest? Specifically, Fox News. <laughs> this is a man who gets up there and espouses complete lies. Lies that would take most listeners, if they were interested, a few seconds on, okay, let's be generous, 30 to 60 seconds on Google to debunk the things that are coming out of their mouth um, or having paid attention in civics class for a few minutes um, might've been able to debunk the fall, the fallacies that come out of his mouth and hit and other anchors on that network. Now, and I'll say this CNN, MSNBC, these are not perfect. I don't just watch one of them. I am not someone who's watching one, one media outlet. I am reading many articles from different outlets. I am watching different videos. I am taking my information directly from the source, congress.gov, what did I say? And not just allowing other people to help me to, to make my opinions for me. That is why I believe that this show is so important, is not only for us to come in here and talk about um, the way that we feel it's affecting us, affecting others, and what our opinions are, are on it from the perspective of you know young millennial men, but also how do we bring people to the table and say, here's where you go for this piece of information. Here's where you go to form this set of knowledge. Here's where you go to find the resources for you to inform yourself and find your own opinion and not allow us to make it for you. And I would just encourage people to be a little more diligent in their media literacy when they're watching news. Do not just listen to what they have to say to you. Now, do I watch Fox News often? Not really at all. Um, I don't watch CNN every night. I don't watch MSNBC every night. But let me tell you, when I do watch those two, 
those two networks, I often am finding myself speaking out loud in disagreement, often criticizing what I think mm-hmm. the wording that they use, I feel like can be inflammatory or can be suggestive or bias. Be critical and be open to changing your mind and finding facts and exploring it on your own. We live in an age of, of constant misinformation and disinformation, and we have to be more diligent about what information we're taking and how we're allowing it to inform our opinions. Terrell, take us on a tangent. Well, it seems like we're going on a whole little rant about a specific party. Um, and I'm just going to click that explicit button right here because I have some quick things to say about that party. Um, for those of you who don't know, well, all of you know, Caleb and I live in Boise, Idaho. And Idaho has been really just a mess. Fucked um, up. Fucked up. A joke. Trash. Dumpster fire. Insert word here. Specifically, there's a group called Idaho Freedom Foundation Coalition. I don't remember because I don't give them any of my time, but they've been on concerted effort to smear Boise State. I'm just going to read you this one piece. It'll, It'll sum it all up. Things are bad on Idaho University campuses. They're teaching our young people to hate America. Colleges promote socialism and Marxism, rewrite history and portray Idahoans as racist. Fuck them. (laughs) Fuck Idaho. Fuck the GQP. Just the amount of anger I get listening to the Idaho legislature talk about Boise State is indoctrinating its Idahoan residents to be social justice warriors when we do the bare minimum this might get me fired. So here we are when we do the bare minimum and yet Idaho still finds a reason to say that Boise state needs to lose $409,000 from its budget because of social justice initiatives. Fuck them. And, And then to get into a debate with people online because I decided I wanted to poke a bear and hear them tell me that, After having my people oppressed for 500 plus years, we all live the same 24 hours now. It is my mindset that's holding me back, not the fact that my ancestors could never own property, could never give my family wealth to move forward. No, 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 no. That has nothing to do with it. But we do need to care about the whiny little white student who's sitting there because they felt uncomfortable talking about social justice and race. Fuck them. And... And really just take a second to educate yourself. Stop letting civics fail you. Stop letting your belief that because our country is diverse, you as a white person have any idea of what oppression looks like because you fucking don't. Stop keeping your head up your ass and caring about Dr. Seuss and caring about Mr. Potato Head. Stop getting mad about a a syrup brand that you didn't even buy until someone pointed out that there was a black woman on it and people want to take it off. Stop. Because that is why you're being called racist. It's not because you're white. It's because you are racist. E for explicit, but (laughs) T for truth. T. Honestly, preach Terrell. I, you know, I, I, I know this is against the rules a little bit, but I just want to add this one little part is that I do hate this notion that our going to college and going to these universities somehow is indoctrinating us into some socialist or Marxist um, ideology. Mm-hmm. Maybe, just maybe, 
we went and got an education away from our hometowns and the influences of our families. And maybe just maybe the world that our, the generations before us left to us have given us a perspective that is different from theirs. And maybe they should do a little less thinking about how we have these perspectives and think a little bit more about the decisions that their generation made that put us here. Unfortunately, it's all about white identity politics these days with one of the parties. Yeah. Well, that's our show. (laughs) To end on a high note. Mic drop. (laughs) I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week.